In a world that can be challenging and at times unpredictable, it's hard to find moments to focus on what you need. Join Stephanie James on The Spark as she guides you to use your inner flame to ignite your best life. As a best-selling author, psychotherapist, transformational life coach, and international show host, Stephanie is dedicated to helping you create a life that takes you, your goals, and your passions to the next level so you can live a life that is fully lit up and fully alive. She believes that your life is meant to be a beautiful expression of the things that light you up, that by living your dreams, you give permission to others to do the same. Are you ready to feel alive and inspired to fuel your dreams and put a fire behind your desires? Let's ignite a spark in one another that will illuminate the world. The Spark with your host, Stephanie James, starts now. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. So great to have you here with us. Really excited about this episode. I hope that all of you are doing well, that you're finding love and hope in your heart and taking time to take care of you. So essential. So tonight I have someone very special with me. I have Jean Gates. And Jean has so many accolades that I can't even report them here. There, He's just been this amazing light from the moment that I met him. I met him a couple months ago at the National Speakers Association Conference in Nashville. And Jean is one of those people that he is not only a serial entrepreneur, he is one of these people that has inspired so many people through a 20-year show he had with his wife, Jean and Julie. And two years ago, won America's Best Radio Show host, someone who really has sparked so much with me. And I just feel really honored to have him here on the show. Welcome, Jean. Stephanie, thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. Well, so let's begin with just a little bit, if we can, of history. What did you first, you know, you, here you are, you're, you're this, not even jack of all trades, you're like a master of so many trades. Tell me a little bit about what was your journey like through school? Did you wake up and say, I want to be a radio show host? I want to do things. I mean, what was it that inspired you into this career? Well, I always liked entertaining. I always liked communicating. Um, I always liked doing uh, a bunch of research. I'm one of those uh, geeks that, uh, that loves, uh, I consider myself a lifelong learner. So I always enjoy, even as a little kid, I'd listen to talk radio and, uh, you know, in search of ancient astronauts and pontificate on whether the pyramids were built by, even by people from another planet or how they built Stonehenge. I think I've just always been naturally curious to absorb and to try and learn and grow uh, emotionally, spiritually, uh, and intellectually. Well, and and definitely um, that shows. Um, so when did you begin your radio career? Was it before Julie, your lovely wife, Julie? <laughs> you know, I met Julie through my, uh, my radio. I actually, you know, I thought, and I think this is a really good lesson uh, that I was fortunate enough to learn early on. And that is, if you want to do something and you really want to do something, go find somebody who's already doing what you want to be doing and find out how they got there. 
So if you can think of this path, if you can know where you're trying to get to and you can go to the end of the path and look back, sometimes it's easier to figure out how you can navigate to get where you're trying to get to. So I went to the number one radio station in Seattle, which is where I grew up. And I wanted to find out who hires uh, the people that are on the radio, who hires the DJs, how do they get hired? So I found out that person's called the program director. So I reached out to the program director and said, hey, I want to someday be a radio show. So can you please tell me how to do it? So he was kind. He took me, I went to the radio station. I got a tour. I met the program director. I met his boss, the general manager. Um, So I kind of got an understanding of the lay of the land, if you will. And I just asked him, I said, look, how, I don't know how to do this. (laughs) Where can I go and how can I learn to do this and to do it well? or at least well enough to get the job I want, right? Or to convince people that I know what I'm doing. So anyway, he recommended, there was a broadcast school in Seattle um, called uh, National Broadcasting, and they taught journalism practices, laws, and, uh, and also uh, processes for how to use the equipment, how to record techniques for, you know, microphone recording, editing, um, playback, all those kinds of things. So it was really more... Um, it's like going to culinary school, right? You're, you're learning how to cook. You're learning actually how to use the equipment in the kitchen, how to cut, how to chop, how to prepare. And um, so that's what I did. And then I, I was, uh, so I, then I pulled out a map and I knew I was willing to drive two hours from my home, but I couldn't start in Seattle as a radio show. So I literally made a circle on a map that would be two hours drive. And I started making a list of every tiny radio station that was out on these uh, you know, borders. And I started just reaching out to them. And that's kind of how I got my first job. Um, other than uh, getting really working hard in school and earning the coveted um, uh, internship. Because if you if you get an internship, and you work really hard, and you prove yourself, then the people that you meet there, most people want to help other people. Everybody wants to give somebody else a hand up, right? And I heard this really interesting story one day from a comic. I don't even remember who it was, but they were saying, if your car breaks down and you sit in your car, no one will stop to help you. But if you get out and start to push your car, pretty soon everyone, a lot of people will pull over and help you push the car because they can see exactly what you need and that you're trying and you just need help. And I think that story is so true in life. If people see that you're actually trying to do something um, and they know how they can help you, then they almost always step in to help. And so I was really lucky because I met uh, a bunch bunch of people in the business. And then I had a really great boss uh, who I finally got hired in Seattle who helped me by introducing me to other program directors around the country. So I would meet them and I wasn't really asking for a job. I was saying, how do I put together a package to apply for a job? What's the resume look like? What does the tape look like? What, what are you looking for? This is the material I made. Would you give me honest feedback if it's good, if it's bad, where it could be improved? And they were all kind. Almost every one of them took my call, had a meeting with me. And, and then I, I just asked very simply before I left, is there anybody else you think that you can think of that I should talk to? that might also be able to help me, you know, tune my, uh, my craft. And they almost always gave me five or 10 names. So 
Uh, and they would almost pop. Oh, you know, in fact, I know a friend of mine who was actually looking for somebody. So uh, that was the that process helped me find the jobs that I was looking to find and move my way up in radio, which in you know broadcasting and acting, I guess as with any job, right? You kind of start entry level, you prove yourself, you work your way up. In radio uh, and in television, that tends to be you start in a smaller sized market, a smaller population, less pay, less competitive. You know, no one's killing themselves to get to market 300 um, for, you know, minimum wage in the middle of nowhere, you know, Iowa or whatever. Um, so it's less competitive, but you can still go there and learn and get good at your craft. So that's that's how I was able to cobble my way uh, into major market radio. That's so great. I, I love the determination that you had and really the courage, because I think that's sometimes yeah. what keeps people in the car. Yes. Yes. Is that they're afraid to ask for help or they're afraid to stand up and say, okay, I, I, I need help. I, I don't know what this looks like. I don't have the model. So yeah, and clearly you can't push your car yourself all the way to the, let's say you're out of gas on the freeway. You're, you can't do that all by yourself, but um, you know, I've, I've myself, I've seen it. I've jumped out to help people who I saw were pushing their car because clearly they can't do that. They need help. Right. Yeah. And, and you're so good at that helping people, I, I know this from knowing you, um, when they are saying, because I'm one of those people, what, what should I do to help improve, whether it's speaking or media or whatever, you are also one of those people that are, yeah, let me help you get out and push the car. So I love that. I want to talk a little bit about you and Julie's show, yeah. because I mean, what, a, what an amazing career, 20 years on the radio. Talk about some of the highlights of that career and some of the dynamics of working with your wife, because I know so many of us are like, well, I work, I mean, I work with my partner and right, right. some people are afraid to. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about that as well, if you will. Funny when you meet people, because when you say work with my spouse, uh, you either get that must be wonderful or you get, oh, my God, I could never work with my spouse. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, you know, the first thought that always comes to my mind when people say, how could you work with your spouse? Uh, but the first thought that comes in my mind is, you know, when you see old people and they're retired and they're spending all their time together, does anybody go, oh, my God, I could never, you know, like you don't think that they have a horrible life because they're spending all this time together um, as a retired couple. This is something we aspire to, right? We want to spend our, our later years with this person who we've spent our life with and we want more time with them and we want to find things. We want our space and we want our own individual time, but we also want this couple time doing things that we enjoy, whether it's travel or belonging to a club or some other kind of an event. So I always think of this old couple who they just love each other. They've been through so much together and they're so close. And that's how I think about my relationship with working with my wife. I don't think of it in the today as I, again, just like, uh, like, like the earlier comment, I think you look at the end of the journey and say, where do I want to get to? I want to get to be an 80 year old couple who's walking on the beach or traveling or, you know, whatever we're doing. Um, how do I get there? And when I, uh, it was unique enough that like we've been featured on the Oprah Winfrey show. The New York times covered our marriage when we got, we eloped in grand central station and the New York times sent a, uh, a photographer. So I think there is, there is an element that is curious about 
you know, what is this unicorn? What are these, what are these people who work together and survive and neither one of them are in jail yet, right? So how did they do that? So uh, when I first met Julie, she was my traffic reporter, right? So I did a radio show and I had a traffic reporter, right? So Julie was the traffic reporter and uh, she was a traffic reporter on nine different radio stations. So I never met her. She was just on a piece of uh, tape, essentially. So my producer would go, we're ready for traffic and they'd upload you know, Julie into the hard drive. And I go, and now 410, let's check traffic. Here's Julie. And I'd push a button and Julie's voice would come on, right? So we didn't, we didn't really talk. And on, a, on rare occasion, we would go live because the things weren't lining up. And so we'd, we'd have a short conversation together. And there was definitely a chemistry there. And I really loved her work, just listening to her on all those different radio stations. Each one had to give her a different name because wink, wink, they don't want you to know that it's the same person sitting in the same one place. Everybody wants you to think it's their traffic reporter, right? So Julie was like unit six on the rock station and she was Tina Taylor on the top 40 station. And uh, and then on the news station, she was another serious, uh, uh, I don't remember the names, but you know, so she had to have a different persona. In addition to flipping a switch to go on that particular radio station, she had to match the persona of that audience. And I thought she was brilliant in all iterations. She had, she was funny, uh, but she was also, she seemed humble. And, uh, and so I, I just really loved her work. And I was uh, in Seattle at the time uh, doing an, uh, an afternoon show and I wanted to do mornings. That's, that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to be a morning show. Because in radio, the morning show is like the lead singer in the band, right? So all the good things come to the morning show, right? You get to be the star of the station. Uh, if there's advertising and, and if they're doing a big TV campaign or billboards, it's going to be for the morning show. If you're giving away a million dollars, it's going to be on the morning show. So the morning show gets all the good stuff. I like good stuff. Yes. <laughs> so I wanted, to, I wanted to do that. So just before I left Seattle, I thought, well, I need to go say goodbye to Julie. We've never met. So Julie worked on the top of the Columbia Tower, the tallest building in Seattle. Like you literally, it feels like you're in a plane almost. It's so tall, right? And so I went to say goodbye to Julie and we opened the door and she's like, I can't believe you're leaving. Where are you going? I said, I'm moving to California to do a morning radio show. She's like, take me with you. And uh, that was that moment where she sort of said, it wasn't her speaking. It was like spirit came through her. Like she didn't really know who said that? <laughs> Where'd those words come from? It sounds like me, but I don't remember saying that, you know? So we decided to hook up and, and become a morning show. And probably within a couple of months of practicing doing a show, we had to go in the studio and make little fake shows that we could, you know, splice up and send out to someone and go, here's a fake show. So you get an idea of what we would sound like if we were a real show, like a prototype, right? Uh, a pilot. So um, in short order, we realized, oh, no, we want to be a couple. And that's awkward because you're working together. You're really, really wanting to uh, do this work. But then you realize you're falling in love with the person you're working with. And that's challenging. So one of my first dates with Julie was to my therapist. <laughs> oh, I love this story. Yes. Because I knew what I knew is that I had been in several relationships and I knew that they burned white hot and I knew they were awesome. And then they weren't. And I knew that relationships failed. I knew that people divorced. And I thought, well, what is it? What is it that would bring somebody together? They would be so in love. They'd be so happy and then not right. What's the tipping point? What, what caused this to happen? How much weight 
or pressure can be applied before it breaks in terms of a relationship. And I said, so if there's one thing I know, I don't know how to make a relationship last. I don't have any experience at that. Right. So we went to, I said, I, I want you to go see this therapist with me. We went to a couple's therapist and we said, look, people always say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So I thought, well, I, I'm an optimistic person. So I want to, I want to change the conversation. I want to say, if you're going to put all your eggs in one basket, take care of the basket. Don't forget to take care of the basket, right? Just keep the egg safe. And the way to do that is to concentrate on the basket. So to me, that's what going to a relationship therapist was. So we went there as a preventative measure to say, how might we, how could we have a long-term relationship and work together and be a couple and make it work? And uh, so uh, we, she gave us some really great advice and, and helped us figure it out. And each time we moved to a new market, we found, we just put it out to the universe. We need to find a really great uh, positive therapist that's, that's going to help us prevent, like the best way to take care of your health is to prevent disease, right? And same thing as with a relationship, right? If you're creating joy and if you're creating a loving atmosphere and you're listening, you really care about your, your significant other, um, then you're going to take really good care of them and they're always going to be happy. So it's no different than if they're your customer, like they're your most important customer. And I see sometimes people in a relationship treat their spouse worse than they would treat their best customer. And I, I always think, why would you do that? Like, this is the most important person in your life. If this was your biggest, most important client, if 80% of your revenue came from one client, how would you treat that client? How would you bend over backwards for that one client? Um, if your husband called you and said, I forgot my wallet at home, I'm at the airport, can you run it to me? If it was your most important client, you'd be so proud of the fact that you jumped on it, you went over there and you delivered the wallet and you'd say, oh yes, here's great customer service. I like my customer so much. I once went to the airport to give them their wallet. But when it's a spouse, sometimes it's like, what do you mean you forgot your wallet? I told you to look for your wallet. How could you not check before you leave? You know what I mean? There you start, you, you start going into this, uh, uh, this storyline of blaming the person uh, as opposed to lovingly delivering that and considering it a gift as you would if they were your most important customer or client. So uh, it helped us keep that point of view. Um, and I'll end by saying um, that if you believe in the law of attraction, uh, then you know that if you just tell the universe that if you just concentrate on the kind of a relationship that you want, then that's what you'll create and manifest. And when you think about what's right in a relationship, more things are right. And when you start to think about what's wrong in a relationship, more things grow wrong. So just don't change lanes. Don't go over to the dark side, right? Don't think about what's not right in your relationship. Think about what's great that you're grateful for, and you'll just naturally get more of that. Like you started off earlier by saying, um, I like to help people. I know you like to help people. We all, if we're good people, we like to help people. It's what we want to do. So the more you're helping me, the more I want to help you. And it's the exact same thing in a relationship. The more you're doing to make their life easier, it almost becomes competitive. Like, oh, I'm going to do something really, really nice for them. No, I'm going to do something really, really nice for you. And you, you get this really kind of fun 
competitive spirit going of who can who can one up the other <laughs> in in the best way. <laughs> yeah, and you know, probably in my head is I have this twenty five years of history. So uh, if that's not clear, or if I'm not explaining that in a way that makes sense, uh, please let me know. Oh no, it's it's so clear, and I love that because I mean, it's a principle in physics, right? What we focus on expands. Yes. So I love this idea because we do, we have this natural negativity bias in our brain that's going to scan the environment for a threat. So I think being intentional, as you're saying, and really looking, being intentional about looking for what's right, really being in gratitude for our partners and making that list. I love thinking of what are some things like really actually you could list what are the things that my spouse or my partner loves? Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure I'm being intentional to bring some of these things into my partner's life, whether it's, you know, a special little cup of coffee or, you know, they, they like going on walks in the evening. I want to make sure that I'm attuning to that. And it is the little things like you're saying, Stephanie, I keep a file in my phone on my notes page. It's just called Julie. And whenever I see Julie liking something new, showing an interest in something new, then I'll, I, will, I will make a note in there and I'll actually schedule it in my calendar. Hey, don't forget Julie discovered that those new chocolates, um, you know, or get her a, a box or whatever and, and, and give, give her some, you know, uh, because you're right, it's the little things. It's waking up and your partner made you a cup of coffee or they ran to, for me, it's a Starbucks cappuccino. That's my thing. And every once in a while, Julie will just show up for the Starbucks cappuccino. And it's like, worst case scenario, I don't want it. We pour it down the drain. Okay, I can accept that. Um, but it just makes you think, well, they're thinking about me. They care about me. Yes. And I told you the first thing I did, I took Julie to a therapist. That's the first thing she did. She said, okay, well, I want you to write down the 20 things you love about Julie. And then she met separately with Julie and said, okay, I want you to write down the 20 things you like about Jean. And you can feel there's a visceral reaction when you start to do this. You can feel your body, the adrenaline, the love deepening, expanding, um, just in the simple act of writing those things down. It's like speaking it into existence, right? Yes. And you become really aware uh, of why you love this person and what it is about them that you love. And it does make you love them and appreciate them more for sure. Yeah. Yes. I love this. And I have to tell you, Gene, as, as a therapist that works with couples, as a couples yeah. therapist, one of the things I love is this technique I have to tell you about. It's so great because even though you and Julie have a phenomenal relationship, this is so fun to do. Yeah. And it's, it's an exercise called flooding. Oh, and so really? what, what you do, you're literally flooding the other person with good feelings. So it starts with one of you starts and you guys have to decide who's the giver and who's the receiver. Okay. And so the receiver, their job is they sit in a chair kind of in the middle of the living room and where you, the sender will say that you're the sender and Julie is a receiver for this. The sender walks around them and at all times you have to be touching them. So you might be touching their knees. And then when you get behind them, you're touching their shoulders and you're maintaining eye contact the whole time. And you start with the first levels of flooding is that you tell them the physical characteristics that you love about them. You might be, I love your eyes. I love your big toes. You know, whatever are the sweet little nuances of physicality that you love about them. Mm -hmm. And then you move to the next round is personality traits. 
So I love that you're vivacious and outgoing. And I love, you know, what a caring person you are in the world and how driven you are. And then you move to their essence. So just, you know, like I truly, yeah, like I see the light that you are. I see that, that, you know, diamond sparkling heart in you. And you end with this kind of big, you, you raise your voice a little bit and you make kind of a grand gesture where you're like, you are the most amazing woman in the world. And all that Julie can do during that time is receive. Yeah. Can't say anything. She just breathes in, you know, I'm always like breathe in because the person that's receiving oftentimes is holding their breath. Yeah. Like, no, just keep breathing. And then you switch seats. Well, here's, I have a question for you as well, Sammy, because one of the things that uh, Julie's grandma told her is marry a man whose faults you can accept. Mm. And I know my faults. I know what's easy to love about me, and I know what's hard to love about me. And I I can certainly sense at times that Julie um, uh, really pays attention to what she loves about me and does not spend time thinking about what she does not love, the things that she can accept. Like, it's almost like they're, she's made a choice. These are things I'm going to accept. I'm okay with that. And you kind of put it aside and it's not a thing anymore because now you've made a conscious decision to just accept those things and they're not going to be a thing for you anymore. Um, but I think that's sometimes harder to do than to say, and I'm also mindful of putting any negative energy or thought into, well, let's, let's just make a list of these things I don't like. So I can be sure that not to be bothered by them. You know what I mean? Like you're giving them energy, you're breathing life into this. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Well, I absolutely agree. Again, you know what we focus on expands. So I would not invite anyone to write down the negative characteristics of their partner. Uh Uh Um, Instead, what I would invite them to do is extend love first to themselves actually, and start a lot of times what we don't like in our partners are parts of us that we don't like about ourselves. And we're seeing it mirrored in our partners. Preach, preach. Yeah. So oftentimes I do think that it is doing that work, which is, I think, so essential learning how to befriend ourselves Mm -hmm. so that at first, you know, I have this great meditation that I love to do with people where they first start with, as they go into this meditation, loving the parts of themselves that are easy to love. Just yeah. like you were saying, like the parts of you that you might, you might be like, I've got a great sense of humor and I'm a really snappy dresser and I'm really kind. Those are parts, you know, things that I can easily love. And then inviting a more, what, what you might call a higher power, divine source. Uh, for some people, it's a universe, even nature, but you're, you're really inviting this more unconditional love Mm -hmm. to come through you. So I have people imagine it coming through the top of their head as a light when it hits their heart to imagine that that love that's bigger than our own going to those parts of us that are more difficult to love and then saying to ourselves, I am willing to fall in love with these parts of myself that I may not love right now. Wow. But again, so much like what you're saying. Yeah especially with yourself, right? We were saying is accepting, it's hard to accept the things you can't accept about yourself, right? That you find unacceptable, but somehow making peace 
you know, coming to a demilitarized zone where you, you, know, <laughs> yes. you, know, you might not be happy about it, but you're not going to war about it anymore in yourself. I'm talking about the inner struggle, right? Yes. Yes. Because when we do that, then it's really interesting how we show up so much differently with our partners. Correct. Yeah. And right. Our behavior, self-destructive behavior, all those other things come uh, as a result of that. So you're right. I've never thought about it in that way of just trying to accept, you know, uh, become the person whose faults you could accept, I guess. <laughs> That's exactly it, right? It's like yeah. Julie accepts those things about you. So then the quest becomes, how do I accept those things within myself? Yeah. That's so you powerful. Know? I love that. That's great. Thank you. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more. Let's go back to the radio relationship that you two yeah. had. And so what was that like 20 years on the air together? Were I, I know one of the things I love about you two is that you, you have told me, and I see it in your relationship, that you would never say anything negative about each other to anyone else. You don't speak that way. So like there was no triangulation during your career. You know, that's, uh, that's hard because that is a discipline. And uh, we both have a little bit of a sarcastic sense of humor at times. And so... You know, the thing that's, that, that Julie and I think always embraced in, in humor is uh, what, the, what they would now call don't punch down, right? So don't make fun of somebody for something they have no control over. Mm-hmm. If I eat sushi seven times a week and you make fun of me for being the sushi guy, that's funny. There's something funny there because these are habits that I have. I have control over you know, and I'm the sushi guy. So it's funny to make fun of me for eating sushi all the time. Or if something comes up and it'd be like, yeah, we should all get together and go out. Well, if Gene's coming along, you know, it's going to be sushi. Like, you know, right. that could be right. funny as long as it's not annoying that we always go to sushi. But like, that's funny. But what's not funny is things people don't have control over that might be considered negative things, right? They're short, they're fat, they're balding. Uh, they have poor teeth. Um, you know, you hear people make fun of people all the time. Well, my husband could never do that because he's, you know, he, he can't even fix the car or something like something just negative, profoundly hurtful. And one of the hardest things I think is you have to negotiate in your relationship that you're going to drop your armor and you're going to let somebody inside. They could do a lot of damage in there. So that's hard. And some people are broken in a sense that they can't let, they can't trust. They can't let people, they've been so damaged or hurt, or they have, uh, they just haven't been able to take a full enough assessment that that they can't let people in. But the, the most beautiful thing is when you find somebody who you can be completely metaphorically naked in front of and have no, no uh, safeguards and you can come in and you know that it's safe. And part of that is negotiating, you know, again, right now we call it trigger words, but it's just the same thing. Like, what are the things that, what are you sensitive about? What are the things that you're, you know, you don't want me to, 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 to make fun of or, 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 or talk about, because I mean, being on the radio means every day, you know, for 20 hours a week, we had to kind of poke fun at each other in a playful, fun, loving way, but you're going to make mistakes. You're going to cross a line. You're going to do something that, that leaves a mark is damaging um, or that just misses the mark. And you think that it's not. And I, I do think having a therapist, makes sense to us because it's sort of like in business, every successful business has a consultant. You need an outside purview to kind of come in and see things 
without all of the colored lenses that we see things through in our own companies, in our own relationships, in our own whatever it is, right? It's like when you go into a room, you know, you just don't notice the smells anymore. Or if someone walks in and goes, oh, you got a cat. It's like, oh, how did you know? It's like, dude, how can you not know? I still don't smell the cat in here. But you're so used to it. You don't see it or smell it or notice it anymore, right? That's true in a relationship. It's true in a business. And I think the more you can understand bringing those business rules into your personal life, that's what Julie and I did. So we had divisions of, of responsibilities, right? So if I am going to be the person who does the grocery shopping, then that's the, that I accept that. Okay, I'm going to do that. That's what I do. I do the grocery shopping. So Julie understands in business, you would never talk to the person who's handling another part of your company. You never trash them for the way that they're doing it, right? Um, but in a relationship, we can sometimes go, ah, oh, you, know, you went to the store. I can't believe you're always going to the store and buying, you know, you're buying this or you're buying that, or you spent too much money on this or too much money on that. It's easy to criticize, right? Um, but so we had to make an agreement that we don't criticize, which isn't to say that you don't say, hey, you know, there's an expression that Steve Jobs used to use at Apple called plussing. I don't think he invented it, but the idea is plussing. It's like, how might we make it better? It's like, I love coffee. I just made a great, great cup of coffee. But you do reach a point where you go, how could we plus this? How could we make this even better? And I think when you come to your relationship or your work from that point of view, you're wanting to get better. You're aspiring to be better. So that's not to say that you don't talk about this silly conversation about groceries, but, uh, but those are the day-to-day mundanes that drive people crazy. You never get the right toilet paper. You always buy the, the dishwashing soap that I hate. Why do you buy those pods? I can't stand those pods, but you're not having a conversation about the pods, right? Um, or maybe you're upset about a bunch of other things. So it's kind of creeps into this. So we had a division to say, look, uh, we had divided up who does what, and then we don't criticize each other for the way that we do it. And especially we don't do it in a passive aggressive way uh, around friends, because I don't know why that seems it's so normalized in our species, or maybe it's just in our culture to just have these passive, I call them hand grenades, right? You just throw in these passive aggressive hand grenades into a conversation uh, that are really damaging and do a lot of, do a lot of pain. So at work, we tried to establish those kinds of boundaries. And then we brought those same kinds of idyllic things at home because Early on, we, we thought, you know, what's really interesting is we never fight at work. If we fight, it's at home. So what's different? At work, it's a pressure cooker. You know, we're always on the clock. We're counting by the second. We're always under tremendous pressure to be better, to be better, to be better, uh, to be perfect. Because perfect is a lot of times what you're aspiring for in your work, right? There's no room for, for, for being average. It has to be the best ever. And so we tried to find out, well, what's different then? Why, why are we, how come we don't argue at work, but we argue at home? And that's where we started to dissect some of the behavior of treating your spouse like they're your best customer. Make the kinds of choices you would if they were your most important customer. Would you complain to them? You know, would you, what would you accept or tolerate um, without even having an emotional feeling about it? Because of course you're going to do that. Of course you want to help your client. Your client needs help with something. You're right there. Of course you're going to take that phone call. Of course you're going to return that text. Of course you're going to do whatever they need to stay happy because that's how you're wired to make your customer happy. And so incorporating as much of those kinds of approaches into our relationship as we did at work, pretty soon we stopped arguing at home too. Um, You know what I mean? So, but I think part of that also gets back to accepting, again, the stuff that you're going to accept. So you're not going to argue about it. It's become senseless. And I think most couples fight about stupid things that are meaningless. They don't even matter. Like, why are you putting all that energy into something that 
doesn't matter. Like it's not a thing, right? Why are you, why are you making it a thing? You could just as easily be talking about something really great about them. You know what I mean? You want someone to sit around and just talk about things that aren't great about you? <laughs> yeah. When is Awful. that ever done? Who goes to that place, right? <laughs> no yeah. One. Yeah. And I, and I love your, your thoughts around, you know, what if we just focused on love? Yeah. That's funny because we were at this restaurant. I think I've told you this story before, Stephanie, but we were at this restaurant in Taos, New Mexico. And uh, the restaurant manager, whose name uh, uh, is Pedro, just a nice guy, great. One of those guys that just takes your customers. He sees you coming in. He lights up. You feel like the whole room lights up. You're so glad you came there. Oh, it's so good to see you. He always takes care of you, gets you a table, make sure you have bread. You never have to want for anything. He's just taking care of every need, smiling, warm, eye contact, making you feel really appreciated. We just loved going to see him at the restaurant in Taos. And one night he had like a smirk on his face as he came over to the table and he kind of puts his hand on the table and he leans down and he says, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you what your purpose is. We're like, sure, restaurant manager. (laughs) He got to say, and he's like, your mission is to teach people love. And I didn't, I didn't understand what that even, what does that even mean? Like what, how to teach people love? Do I, should I put on a class? Do I, what, what does that mean? Do I make a documentary? Like, what is that? How do I teach people love? I didn't know what it meant. And uh, the more I got to know about him, I, I became to understand that he was a true shaman uh, for one of the tribes uh, in Taos, New Mexico. And uh, he was from a line of shaman and he, had actually gone and done the sun dances in the Dakotas. And, and he was really devout uh, as a healer uh, and as a spirit guide. And uh, it was just such a beautiful moment, but it was completely overwhelming to try and wrap my mind around what does that mean? And it was hard to, you know, Julian, I've always been afraid to talk about, look at us. We have a great relationship because people tend to want to throw daggers. Mm-hmm. They want to help you when you're on your way up. But then as soon as you get up there, they want to knock you down. It seems to be a tendency, right? So we've always been really careful and cautious um, about, about speaking too much about our relationship and speaking more about the, the, per, the, the people that we work with or the therapists we've had, the healers we've met, uh, the, 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 the people that have helped us on our journey, the people that helped us push our car. We would rather talk about them than our decision to get out and push our car. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So it's, it's always been a little bit, um, I, you know, I, I think in life, sometimes we know things are, are fragile or yellow light, I like to call them. So there, there are moments when you just have to pause and pay attention. And I think talking about, you know, your relationship or your kids or how great you are, or how great they are or whatever. I, to me, those are like yellow light moments where you kind of have to proceed with caution. And as you think about a relationship, it's funny we're talking about this, but um, I've got a coffee cup. This is just a basic coffee cup, right? But I also have really beautiful china that I got from my mother. And the china is so fragile. It's so fragile. Like you can hold it up and you can see light through china. It's what makes it so beautiful. It's like almost uh, gossamer, right? It's so beautiful. But the thing is, it's super fragile. Like it chips so easy. And if you chip it or crack it or drop it, it's never going to be the same again. 
Never. So I always think of our relationship like fine china. It's good for many generations. It's durable. But don't mistake that it's durable for the fact that it's fragile. So when you handle it, you're always handling it with care. You never run it to the dishwasher. You don't go fast. You go slow. You make sure not to chip. You wash it. You dry it. All done by hand. And there's an energy and a love and an appreciation that you put into the china every time you use it. Uh, and when you put it away, you're extra cautious and careful. And I think that's how you should treat a relationship. It will endure eternity if it's treated and handled always with respect, always slow down and realize the care. Um, and it'll, it'll last forever. That's just beautiful. I love that analogy. It makes so much sense. And I have some of my grandmother's fine china. So I could really relate to that as you were saying that, as I'm, I'm sure so many people can. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's two huge takeaways already, just thinking about treating your spouse or your partner as your best customer. I love that. I'm using that gene. That is so phenomenal. And treating them like fine china. So, you know, I had no idea as we began this, this interview, what our direct focus would be. And I love that we're talking about relationships because I feel like this is one of the essential pieces that we all need. We need this information. We need this kind of idea where we can see, oh, this is a way through. This is a way to heal my relationship, or these are things I can do to improve my relationship. Because whether we like it or not, we're going to be in relationship with others, No matter what, whether we're in a primary relationship or relationship with someone in our family. And so how to have a good relationship? How can we focus on the things that we love about these other people? How can we focus on what's good in them? Mm -hmm. But we really- Yeah, and you're right. I think that's applicable. Now that you're saying that, I realize it's applicable to all relationships, right? It's to my neighbor that I want to have a friendship with, that I want to, uh, with intentionality- um, have a, a great positive relationship and always speak kindly um, and always to put positive energy and thought into that. But you're right. It's, it's, it crosses all relationships because everybody wants the same relationship but with you. I want to be your friend. I want to have a long relationship with you and I want you to always feel safe uh, and protected and guarded. Like I'm one of the people that's helping, uh, you know, protect you. You know, I'm, I'm one of the, the, the pickets in the fence that's helping protect you. You know what I mean? I want you to always feel that way. And I, I have to be mindful of that as well. It is that's, and, and I think you just brought it, you know, to point it's intentionality mm-hmm. and that's, that's so essential in all of this. And obviously it, it's been a huge thing in your career. You've been very intentional about what you've done and you've been very successful. And I think what's fascinating too, is you've interviewed some of the biggest names around, you know, when, when you and Julie did your morning show, I have to do this little piece in here because I think it's so phenomenal because you both are so humble. And yet who, who are some of the favorite people that you interviewed? Cause I know you've interviewed and I know you can't say favorite. um, Except Biden. Um, We've interviewed all presidents. Um, And that's always, uh, there's just something that's really uh, intimidating, pressure's on, you got to bring the A game. There's something really intentional about that. 
Um, celebrity wise, gosh, everybody from rock stars to Oscar winners to uh, Grammy Emmy winners, like everybody, uh, everybody who has a successful project, part of that project means they have to go out and do what's press, right? They have to go out and be interviewed. So like we spent um, a whole morning with Tom Hanks, one of my favorite people of all time. The thing I loved about Tom is, and what I learned from Tom Hanks is uh, Tom Hanks was promoting this movie. Now Tom's, he's an A-list actor, right? Tom is the best of the best at his craft, right? And he's doing this morning radio show uh, in, we were in Dallas, Texas at the time. So he'd just flown in the night before from LA. So he's on LA time. He's got to be at 6 a.m. or something to the radio station for us to do the interview, six or whatever it was, six, six or seven early. And the thing that really struck me about Tom is when he walked in the door of the radio station, he was only with one or two other people. It wasn't a huge entourage, just one or two people. So that was, that was initially like, oh, that's really interesting. He's traveling with a pretty small squad. He was dressed, showered, shaved, uh, wearing nice clothing. He had already read the paper. He knew what was happening in Dallas. He'd written a couple of jokes. And when he came in, he was, as soon as the microphones opened, as soon as we cracked the microphone, he was Tom Hanks and he was on stage and he was performing. And so for Julie and I, we just kind of stepped out of his way. We just let Tom be Tom and he's so good, but he was prepared. He was present. He was intentional. He knew he was there to promote his money, um, his movie, but he wasn't sleazing us with nothing but a great big spammy sales pitch about the movie. I mean, of course he mentioned the movie in the end, but the thing is you loved Tom so much more. Of course you want to go see him in the movie because there's Tom and he's just Tom and he's the best, best, best. So I really love that lesson from Tom Hanks about um, just being really prepared and present and don't just show up, be intentional, right? Um, same thing with Elton John. Um, we spent like a day and a half with Elton John. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. Nothing like what I was expecting. I thought it would be this big diva, you know, prima donna kind of you know, person, you know, and he wasn't. He was present and he was humble and he was friendly and he, like he brought his dog when he came in and before we even did the interview, he wanted to know about us and we got to play with the dog. So we sort of bonded and created a friendship and a relationship before we got into the business uh, part of things. And it's sometimes hard to think about, oh, there's a rock star, um, but they're a business. They're no different than Nordstrom, right? Or Apple, they're a business. And when you have a good relationship with your customers, right? Um, then they're gonna love your company even more. And it was really interesting because, again, Elton John, super, super, super successful guy. He did not need his career. There, there was no part of being on the Gene and Julie show was going to affect his career, right? There was no one thing on our show that was going to affect his career. Um, but he was, uh, he was warm and present. And I felt like I was a very important customer of his when he came to the show. So those are a couple of my favorites. Oh, so what, thank you so much for sharing those. I mean, what a joy. I know that I have had those same experiences with the people that are my heroes in the business, like Bruce Lipton that I've had on the show, or even just this last week, I interviewed Carl Mecklenburg, mm. who was former Denver Bronco. And to grow up watching him, yeah. I told him, I said, I feel like I'm a 19 year old hanging out with my favorite rock star. <laughs> you know, this was, it was such a treat. And so it's such an honor. And we do learn amazing things, don't we, from these interviews? We also understand, you know, the term noblesse oblige? 
Uh, so it's this idea that with, you know, uh, you know, with um, people who have, who've received much, much is expected essentially. Right. Mm -hmm. So like in a lot of these cases, noblesse oblige is this idea that again, if you grow up as royalty to appreciate your stake in the world and share your nobility, share your, uh, your, uh, uh, share your bread, if you will, right. Share uh, the benefits of this wonderful life that you have. And I think when you go into, again, a, a, any kind of relationship or any kind of conversation, if you can, if you can be mindful um, that you're there to give a gift the best you can and, and to just, to just do your best gift giving, right. Whether it's emotionally or physically, or just be present care um, and, and treat them, I guess how you'd want to be treated as well. Right. Yes. It's, it's so interesting in this conversation, how that's just going through all relationships. It is. It's, it's and that's what our of, life is about, right? I mean, yes. we don't live in a little tiny village anymore with, you know, 20 people or, or whatever. Um, but uh, our, our, our worlds are bigger. Uh, but, you know, to really covet those five or six relationships uh, that you would, you know, ask for money, ask for a kidney, ask for help, whatever, um, to have those people in your life that uh, your rider dies. Uh, and that's, that's a two-way street, right? Absolutely. It's that infinity sign in my mind of energy that we circle back and forth with one another. Exactly. It's that giving and receiving that continues, you know, unendingly. And I just think that's so beautiful. And so, Gene, as, as we're getting closer to the time that we're wrapping up, talk a little bit about what's ahead for you, because I know you have a new business and it's something that appeals to me very much um, as a podcaster. Can yeah, you so share? I like uh, right now I'm helping people create podcasts, mostly brands. So uh, not someone who wants to be the next, you know, great, you know, viral uh, YouTube uh, chef, you know, cooking for their dog, you know, like uh, for the most part, I deal with people who, who wants to, there's a term called authority marketing. And uh, this is a term that I learned working with Forbes books. And uh, the idea in Forbes is pretty simple and it's pretty brilliant, right? You, you're, you bought a house on the beach, but you didn't buy the house from the money you made from the proceeds of the book that you wrote. You bought the house on the beach from the money you made from the proceeds because you wrote a book. So this gives you credibility to do other things. You don't make the money from the book. You make the money from the things that because you wrote a book bring to you, right? Yeah. So this is this idea of authority marketing. So, you know, we all are familiar with terms like subject matter expert, um, expert in their field, all these kinds of things. And how do you make people aware of the fact that you exist or that you have an area uh, that you're experts, a funny word, right? What makes you an expert? I don't know. Is it your passion? Is it just that you're all in, you love this thing and you spend every waking moment learning more about it? and you like to share and help people, like what's the car that you want to be pushing, right? Um, because that's who you are. And so I'm comfortable saying I'm an expert, just like there's a thousand experts. We're, we're all experts. We're all trying to be better. We're trying to get better. So creating this podcast for, for these people or brands um, is exciting to me because what they're trying to do is they're trying to communicate a message. And oftentimes, we know so much about the thing we're trying to do that it's overwhelming. It's too much. Like, uh, so you, you have to find a way to structure it so that people can actually 
take it in, right? It's like any storytelling, right? You need to tell the story in a way that people can understand and they don't get confused or lost. And the same is true with brands and the same is true with people. Um, you know, like when you say, tell me about your life, Gene, I'm like, well, oh my God, we're okay. Uh, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. I know too much about myself to tell you my life. I don't know what's interesting to other people about my life, right? Um, so it's really easy if you can ask very specific and pointed questions because I, I am an expert at telling the story of, of, of how I met Donald Trump, but I'm not very good at saying how would I go about meeting a celebrity? Like that's so there's, that's such a broad, overwhelming idea. So that's what I like to do with creating these podcasts for people is helping them structure and organize the kind of show that they want to do. So that's my main thing that right now is, is creating podcasts for brands. And I really enjoy doing it. So fun. Well, how would someone get a hold of you, Gene, if, if they were a podcaster or wanting to break into that industry? How can people contact you? GeneGates.com is pretty easy. That is so easy. And Gene is G-E-N-E. It is. Yeah. G-A-T-E-S, just like Bill Gates. <laughs> yes. Yes. Love it. But without all the philanthropy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Gene, gosh, what a... This, this has just been such a wonderful interview. I just have, and I always enjoy our time together. If you had an essential message that you wanted to leave with the audience, what would that be? To be kind, to, to be patient. Um, you know, our body temperature is supposed to run 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, essentially. That means we're doing pretty well. One of the first things the doctor does take their temperature, right? How are you feeling? Do you have a temperature? Uh, a temperature is defined as 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or greater. So the difference between health and illness is less than two degrees Fahrenheit. That is a very fragile organism. And I think if people would just remember that they are so fragile Less than two degrees Fahrenheit separates health from illness. And the, that fragility also is an emotional thing, as you know. So if we can just remember that we're all very, very fragile, and we can bring that understanding when we're handling this emotional China or this physical China that we call our friends or that we call um, our partners um, if we can just try to remember to center ourselves, it's hard to do. It's easy to forget. Um, it's, you know, I get, I get, I'm pissed off in traffic too. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why these dumb people are acting so stupid on the highway. Um, You're human too. Yeah. It's very hard to stay, to stay in that place and still also be highly productive and not, you know, overly sensitive. Right. But I do think if you could just remember that to be kind, to understand that everybody has, their thing. Um, and you have yours thing too. And the more that you can help other people, the more other people will want to help you. Yeah. Beautiful, Jean. Thank you so much for being here. Just such a joy as always. This has been The Spark with Stephanie James. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Jean. I love you. Thank you, Stephanie. Mm, love you.